like to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Well Show. Your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias Randall. Eli, you kicked off high school football last week, right? Yeah, yeah, it started. Uh, the season's going. It was so far, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm looking forward to the rest of the season being fun and competitive. Our first, our first couple games so far, uh, nothing too crazy. So especially the the first one was really decisive game, and those are those are easier to officiate because you know it was thirty one zero ball game. So there's not a whole lot of uh, hollering at the refs about you know impacting the game or anything like that. So did you miss any crucial calls? No, no, I That's actually good. only had my flag out twice, and one of them was for. Uh, they're trying to play with 12 guys on defense, so that's not allowed. Easy one. Everyone I'm can try to sneak it through. I mean, at least everyone can count to 12. So, and then pass interference that it was pretty atrocious. I I think everyone in the bleachers knew that the receiver was interfered with. So, oh, easy ones. Good. One thing I wanted to hit on before we get started, but uh, a month ago we did like a listener episode where we asked listeners what are the questions you guys wanted answered. We actually missed one, and I think this is a really good question that a lot of people actually have how to approach this. And it's actually from Scott, and he asked, do I need an emergency fund in retirement? And I, I think it's a good question because we need one while we're working and accumulating money, and you still need one in retirement. It might just be a little bit different. And I, I like to talk to people who have retired about you have a giant emergency fund once you retire, right? It's your funds you've saved. It's your 401k, your IRA, your author, whatever it could be. But one of the things people don't think about is that if you, the nature of an emergency fund is safety. So let's just say you have a, someone with half a million dollars in retirement assets, Arguably, it's all liquid, depending upon the products that you may or may not have purchased. But most of the accounts we work with would be liquid enough you could get somebody the money very, very quickly. With that said, it's one of the reasons that we've created the Premier Bucket Strategy so that we're actually giving our assets responsibilities. And, and what I mean by that is an emergency fund is really there for emergencies only. You're only going to touch it if you need to. So what that would mean in this big picture of a retirement fund is that you have a certain amount of money that's sitting in cash that if something bad happens, you can get right at it. So to answer Scott's question, yes, I believe you should have an emergency fund. It's a lot easier to have one today because you can get a reasonable rate of return on cash or cash alternatives, short-term saving vehicles that hasn't always been there. But it really goes back to why we have the bucket strategy for people. We have the liquid or the cash bucket. We have the income bucket. We have a growth bucket. And then we have the protected, the premier protected growth bucket. So if you think about those four buckets, that's why we do it. So that we always know what money has the emergency fund responsibility. And when you said, when you said emergency fund is about safety, are you, are you referring to one, the types of products you would use for emergency fund type money and for safety as far as when you have an emergency there, it's a, it's available. You can use it. 
Yeah, I, and it, if I go back to Scott's question. He actually said I recently depleted about 75% of my emergency fund on home repairs. So what he's asking is, should I fill it up? Yeah, you should fill it back up with cash, especially now because short-term CDs are around 5%. Like, that's a reasonable return on a cash safe investment. Yeah, on a cash position. Yeah. yeah. So I, th I think that was a good question. I just wanted to hit on it because we actually get that a lot from people they, they are kind of confused about, Hey, do I, in the other one, we get a lot of lies is should I keep saving in retirement? Well, keeps You know, I yeah, guess like, if, if you're just leaving off your social security check and a pension, you have extra money, then you should save money. But assuming you don't need it all, then you should save. But if you're withdrawing money from an IRA or a 401k to save money into a, into a savings account or a bank or something that that's a little silly. That's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yes. So with that said, we'll kind of move on, but, um, spending and enjoying in retirement, right? That should kind of be the, do I have this plan in such a way? I have a good distribution strategy. Can I spend this money, have fun and enjoy it and have my lifestyle saving? I mean, yeah, you should have the prudent things, emergency fund, like we're talking about, but, I don't know that you'd want to see your savings account going up in value by $5,000 every month or something crazy like that. Yeah. And you know what it actually leads to? If you just think about the decision-making of people, I feel like everybody in life has like this optimal period of time where you make good decisions. You think about young people, like I'm not saying we don't, young people don't make good decisions, but as you have more life experiences and you age and you get a little wiser, I guess, you start to analyze things differently. And I guess, I don't know, I'll throw it out there. What age do you think people actually make the best financial decisions? Because well, I, I was going to ask you, I cheated. I know the answer. I didn't cheat. So I don't know. Um, throw a guess out there. 53. That's at, that is dead on. I, I literally didn't think about this. I just think from my experience, I, I have no idea that was the answer. I was yeah. way out of left field. 53. Here's why. I've been doing this for 21 years. And what I see is pre-50, not that they're bad decisions, but they're not as good of financial decisions that people make. And 53 to me seems like this aha moment. It's like, okay. If I haven't done things, I need to get really serious really quick. And people start making different decisions. And probably you're over like a little bit of the keeping up with the Jones. A lot of people at 53, guess what? They have kids that are out of the house now, so they're not probably around other people and feeling like they have to always keep up. The other thing, yeah. the other thing I see is after you, you hit a certain age, and I, I don't know exactly what that age is, but let's say older in life, 75 and up. People's ability to make decisions, good decisions, many times is in a reduced capacity. And it's not a bad thing. It's not negative. Just we have to realize that as people get older, their ability to process information becomes less. It's why when you look at regulators in our industry, when you look at scams that involve seniors, they involve people north of 75 years old, typically like the person at 59 
many people in their 50s can still figure out, hey, this is a $6,000 car. I don't need an extended warranty. But people that are of a certain age may be like, oh, yeah, that extended warranty sounds good. And they're not factoring in, hey, the car's only worth six grand. Why would I buy a warranty for two? And this is personal experience. I had a family member this happened to. It went in for an oil change, got sold an extended warranty in a car that was worth like 11,000 bucks. We're like, why do you need a $2,000 extended warranty? You have the money to just fix whatever happens. Situation where, hey, yeah. we're older, we're a little bit easier to take advantage of. So I, that apparently I had the right, the right guess there. But Yeah, and I think it's a combination of you've made more decisions in life. And I think it, part of it is there's also less mistakes. At that point, like a lot of people, especially if they're in their mid fifties and they're going to work with, do some financial planning and some things, well, that just like inherently shows you're a little more serious. You want to make sure you do the money part of your life correctly. So you're probably not making credit card mistakes that maybe you made when you were 25 and 26 mm -hmm. years old. Um, you probably have an emergency fund. Like we were just talking about, like you're just, you're, you've had more life experiences where, you know, being prepared for those things is, you know, is very important. Um, one of the things in here that was discussed on mistakes people in their, in their fifties tend to make one is underestimating life expectancy. So according to this study, life expectancy for typical 50 year old expects to live until age 76. Um, and actuarially most people are going to live closer to 86 years old. So, and that's the, I would say to go along with the life expectancy. The other thing I know we coach up people on, cause now you're getting close to the transition. Once you're 53, 54, you're not that far away from the years you're thinking about retiring. Some people do retire that early and we'll get questions about risk tolerance and, should I be more conservative? I, I would think in general, and this is not a recommendation because this is just broad, broad strokes, but if you've done a really good job and you're at that point, like there might be some opportunities to add some protection into a portfolio and things like that. But in general, even at 55, your investing career could still be another 30 years where a lot of people view their time horizon as, oh, I'm going to retire at 60. So that's my time horizon when that's actually just the day you're going to stop working. It's not the day that you, uh, that you're going to stop investing and need strategies to help you accomplish your goals. That's, that's actually a great point. And it's why we believe creating this financial plan to figure out what the optimal portfolio is for your unique situation, because you're right. People inherently think the older I get, the more conservative I must become. And that actually can be really dangerous. I mean, I'm okay if you can become more conservative and still have the most optimal outcome for retirement, but that should be calculated through the use of a planning tool versus I'm old, I'm older, so the default option is more conservative. It's actually one of the knocks that we always have on target date funds. People don't understand what a target date fund is. They, the, the industry created these funds that says, oh, well, you're going to retire in 2035, so you go into a 2035 fund. It's an arbitrary asset allocation. And I'll give you a good example. What's the typical 2025 target date fund? What's the asset, the asset mix? How much stock to bonds? 
60-40 I bet, in Probably the ballpark of? 50-50, I would say. Okay. But most people, a lot of people who are retiring would expect that portfolio to actually be more conservative. Without know, Yeah, without knowing anything, they probably assume it is more conservative. I think that. if we polled people that were 67 years old and retired and they had a 2025 target date fund and we said, is this a conservative investment, a moderate or an aggressive investment? The overwhelming answer would be conservative. But then if I ask someone if 50% of your money in the stock market is conservative, most of them would say no. They would probably say 20 or 30% would be considered conservative or less. So I think many people don't actually know what they own. And it goes back to your point, like just because you're older, the target date funds are doing it for you kind of, but just because you're older doesn't mean you can't take risk. You have lots of time to be invested in this market. Right. And there's better ways. There's better ways to quantify that than just like, oh, I'm older. I should be more conservative or one of the to me, one of the most arbitrary ways to pick an asset allocation is you hear the you take 100 minus your age. And then that's what you should be in stocks. I've heard that before. But like, how does that even well, one, that's not unique to anyone. And two, how is that even true? That would mean at 50 years old, you're supposed to be a 50 50 investor. Well, but. Maybe you could be, but if you, maybe you need to catch up on savings. So maybe you need more risk in your portfolio to hit your goals or, you know, there's just a lot more to it than just those in general things that you hear people talk about and say. Well, it's once again, why we do the plan, because we can quantify what the outcome is for somebody. So example, you're 70 years old. So one minus your age is 30% in stocks. Well, if I did a financial plan and you're, your probability of a positive outcome was 30% having 30% in stocks or it was 75 or 80% having 60% in stocks. What would you choose? You, you're going to want to have a better chance of success. But everybody no picks the best it's outcome. Yeah. It's like going to your doctor and they said, well, we have two ways to do this procedure. I'll give you an example. I broke my arm snowboarding. 12 years ago, okay? There's two routes to fix my arm. One was surgery, right? The outcome was you're gonna have surgery, you'll be in a sling for five days, then we take it off and it hangs there and everything will be fine. Two, which was what they wanted to do first, was it was such a clean break, they were just gonna put me in a brace and a sling and let it fuse together. So I had two options. Which they okay. were similar, but you know what provided the most the the probability of a better outcome was through doing the surgery, because was it was it? guaranteed okay. to heal correctly. The hope was if we didn't do surgery, it would fuse perfectly together, but there was still the chance that it'd have to go back. I'm guessing. So you opted for surgery. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's yeah, a, because the, it was a guaranteed, out, the, much higher likely outcome for you. The the probability that I would have to go back and redo the surgery was significantly less. The really only negative ramification of the surgery was if the screw in my arm starts to back out, they potentially have to go and take the screws and plates out, which my arm still healed. It would just be another level of rehabilitation where the other one was, well, if it doesn't heal right, we'll get to still do the surgery and then we still run the risk of the screws backing out and then you'll get to take that plate out anyway. 
So right. I had the choice. I went with the one that provided the most optimal outcome, which is what people typically do when we do a financial plan as well. Yeah. And if those screws back out, it's not like you just go grab the DeWalt and hammer them back no, in there I mean, a little bit. Yeah. In, you got to get it's, cut it's, open again and kind of redo it. It's basically redoing the surgery, yeah. like undoing it. So what, and it's not a bad thing. It's just the rehab wouldn't be a whole lot of fun. Like my wife would be really upset. You don't understand how hard life is with one arm. I broke, actually, I broke, I broke my arm in eighth grade. Broke my left arm in eighth grade. It, it's worse when you have responsibilities. <laughs> well, yeah. You had your mom to take actually, care of Actually, so here, here's the worst thing that happened to me when I, and I was still in uh, the junior high band at that time playing trombone. So I was supposed to get picked up every day. Um, the, my ride forgot to pick me up and I had a cast. I went, covered my hand all the way up my shoulder because my left arm got split in half. Um, so then I had to ride my bike with my cast that's covering my entire arm and I had my instrument, my trombone. So like, yeah, that's, that's the worst thing that happened to me while my arm was broken was riding my bike to school one day. Well, it actually kind of leads our discussion of creating this financial plan to get an optimal outcome kind of leads to the number one, most important question or most important number in the plan. And it's, you have to kind of determine how much money you need to live on. You know, financial plans pretty worthless unless you have a real grasp on what you spending and what you want to spend in retirement. And, and I get that question a lot. How do you actually determine that? And I, I think, goes back to first question. What's the optimal age for decision-making? 53. If you start thinking about your retirement at 53, you've probably left yourself somewhere between 12 and 15 years to get settled into a lifestyle, one, but two, make all the appropriate decisions to make that lifestyle come true. And a lot of people think about how much they're going to spend in retirement 90 days before they retire. That's arguably a Cutting little it close. Late. Cutting it close. And what's interesting is when we do financial plans, we I've got a study here, and it, it shows that the average Americans actually overinflated the amount of money they think they're going to need, which is a little shocking to me, but here's why. This is the only reason it's a little shocking. When we have someone come in and do a financial plan, a lot of times they forget about, hey, I'm probably going to travel more in the first five or seven years, what we call that go-go phase of life. So many times they'll say, well, you know, our budget's 4000 a month when we start or 5000 whatever it is. And then they forgot to add the travel. So we have to talk to them about adding and scheduling that travel in there. But many times people also believe they're going to spend the same amount of money every single year in retirement. And I would argue with most people that this is really going to, your spending your retirement is going to go in phases, right? Phase one is that go-go phase. It's arguably the time when you might spend the most money on an annual basis that you ever do in retirement. Now, I'm going to use my parents as an example. They just retired. So have all kinds of time on their hands. They just drove to Clear Lake to check out the campground and drove back in the same day. That's something they wouldn't typically do because they didn't have time. 
Not that that was a big expense, but they probably spent an extra $50 going up there and back in gas. And those things add up over time. Typically, you do more vacations. You see your kids more, your grandkids more, all those different things the first few years. And then as you, you know, progress into retirement, the things that you're really busy doing start to wane a little bit. Your energy level wanes. Maybe you're not moving around as good and you kind of get into that, what we call the slow go phase where not a whole lot's happening. You're not really, you're not going to Clear Lake for a day trip. You're not pulling a camp around the countryside. You're not taking trips to Europe. It's like, hey, yeah, I'll see my family when they come visit me. And that's the phase you probably spend a lot less money. So when people put together a plan, they'll they'll assume they're going to live their lifestyle today. Well, your lifestyle today involves food, out to eat a lot of times. I mean, for most people's budgets today, they have a lot of money out to eat. But it involves just a lot of spending on other things. And they, they're like, well, that's what I'm going to spend all the way through retirement. And that that's likely not the case. And I think that's why people have overestimated um, what they may actually need from a spending standpoint. And it's really, it's really a question of, um, of lifestyle too, right? We talk about all the time, what, what you need, like the lump sum number that you just need in your investment accounts. It just depends on your lifestyle. There's no, like, there's no one answer. Elias, these are the best, the best plans that I, that I run is when I get two, two, two public, um, state of Iowa employees come in here and they have IPERS. They have two IPERS checks, two social security checks, and those checks are adding up to somewhere. Let's just call it 160 to $180,000 a year. They each have four from IPERS, right? So that's eight. They each have 2,500 for social security. So that's like 13,000 a month. And then you look at their assets and let's say they have 300,000 403B. So it'd be a really common scenario. And we talk about the plan and we're like, well, arguably you're really never going to run out of money because you have these pensions. Like even if you ran out of money, you're not running out of pension. So for those people, it's really about trying to refine their budget to make sure that they can make it on that 13,000 a month, which I mean, if I told most people you had 13,000 a month, in retirement, they'd be pretty thrilled. That's not that uncommon if you have two public employees because they for they they forewent the accumulation of assets in a 401k plan or other, you know, company spots or plan in lieu of a pension. Right. And it's for it's great families in those situations, almost like your whatever investment dollars you have, like it's a it's almost just a big account that you have for extra expenses when you want to travel. You can hedge inflation that way too to give yourself raises over time if you need to supplement income. But, but, but yeah, that that situation is very helpful. So as you transition, especially into retirement and just any budgeting, um, so four questions you should be asking yourself as you refine your budget, whether it's whether it's going into retirement, retirement you're still accumulating. Um, one of the first ones is, and I think we ask people this a lot, well, just how does money make you feel? Or another good question is, what is someone's relationship with money? So when it comes to a budget, just understanding that, and a topic we covered already was the emergency fund. A lot of times, how money impacts people emotionally kind of guides the size of the emergency fund that they should have. 
a good example. Let, let's say you feel that you have a job that if you were to lose it tomorrow, you can easily find another job in the same area. There's the same market, um, same work, making the same money. And you think, I just want enough to have to cover all emergencies and have like six months worth of income. Yeah, that's probably a reasonable, probably whatever that number is, that's probably reasonable. But someone in that same situation, if they were to express, I just feel more comfortable having one year's worth of salary in my savings account as my emergency fund. Well, let's just take the path of least resistance. And that's your answer. If that's what makes you feel most confident, then let's do that. Um, the, the, the next one is, are your goals in alignment with your values? I think this one here, uh, th this really lends to doing some sort of planning. Um, you know, when, when you start to define your own goals through a unique financial plan that's unique to you and what you want to achieve, th that's how you can know that Hey, these are my goals. These are the things I believe in. These are this is the value set that I have. You can start to make decisions with those things in line. We talk a lot about a financial plan sometimes for people or not sometimes, almost all the time. You can look at it as a decision tree. How do we start to make decisions through the lenses of put you in the best position to accomplish your your long-term outlook? Um, do you have a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset? So scarcity mindset is a, like the perception of lack. Like you feel like maybe I don't have enough resources. Maybe I should cut back a little bit. And then an abundance mindset is you just believe you have enough. You're doing the things that you should be doing. And, uh, you know, and you're going to save some money and spend some money, but you're, you're just really have more of an abundant abundance mindset over a scarcity mindset. And well, then one of the things too, that determining what these mindsets actually do, right? Why you should do it. Um, it plays a big role in combating the fear of missing out because, FOMO. well, I mean, at very few people I would, I'm sure there's people out there, but most people have some level of FOMO, like I'm missing out on something. It's just really how you react to it and how you handle that situation. You know, I've, I've said it for a long time that social media has brought this to light. And, and what I mean by that is if any day you go turn on Instagram, Facebook, whatever your media of choice is, there's a few things you're going to see. You're going to see your friend on vacation. You're going to see your next friend on vacation. You're going to see the next friend on vacation. Then you're going to see the friend that bought a new house. Then you're going to see the friend that got a new car. Like all want, the like, I want all those things. We want all those things, but you have to realize you might have two or 3000 connections on there. So while you think everybody on there is doing this, it's really just a very, it, think about it. if you had 2000 connections on a social media platform and you saw four people on vacation, You'd be like, man, I need a vacation. Everyone, everyone's on vacation. Realistically, if you have 2,000 people, it's less than two-tenths of a percent of the people on but vacation. It makes you feel but it like makes you everyone. feel like everybody's on vacation. So, yeah, I, I think, once again, the social media has brought that FOMO mindset out. But that's where I understand whether your scarcity or abundance mindset plays. You also have to figure out what financial traumas do you actually have. I mean, talk a little bit about this, Elias. 
Well, so I think another way to maybe look at this, so financial trauma, you know, it's just kind of like what's influenced you with money over the years, whether it was observing how maybe your parents and people you looked up to handled money, um, maybe things that have happened in your own life, just personal day-to-day decisions, probably how you feel about budgeting. I think I think a good way to approach this, you know, if you're in a, like a dire situation or you just feel like you need help, there are like financial coaches out there that can help people. I know Dave Ramsey has a program that you can reach out to and get help putting together a budget, executing some um, simple action items to get to get yourself straightened out. But I think if you understand, if you can start to understand how you're influenced to think about money, you'll understand other things like, well, why do I have this FOMO or fear of missing out when I see these things? Or I see someone that has a nice car and then I feel like I want to do that. Kind of a keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Maybe you can start to implement some strategies that you just don't really think about that. And then I think ultimately, if you can get to a point where you're, you're just, you're saving an appropriate amount to hit your goals, like whatever that contribution rate is for you, you have an emergency fund, you're having a lifestyle that you enjoy are at, at, at all times in your life, are you always going to have the lifestyle you absolutely want? Like probably that probably ebbs and flows for people. Sometimes you do, but then maybe you've experienced some nice things and you go, Oh, I'd like to experience nicer things. So but I think just kind of being able to wrap your mind around that, understand your relationship with money, that's going to help. That's going to help get you pointed in the right direction, or I've at got, least get you on the path. I've got a great example of financial trauma. So at the LPL Focus Conference, you know, I sat and listened to Aaron Botsford, who people listening probably have no idea who Aaron is, but she's a high-powered female advisor in our industry, top 100 Barron's advisors in the country. So she was the top of the top. Sold her practice in 2017, but she was talking about how financial trauma led her to this industry and led her to kind of excel and be a really big driver, I would say. And and I'll tell you why. When she was, I don't remember her age, but it was like 16 or 17 years old. She lived in California and she had a car accident and she was found to be at fault. But she didn't believe she was at fault, but they found her to be at fault. And she, her family didn't have any money and they were suing the family for basically everything they had. And her, her lawyers and parents said, Hey, you're going to plead guilty to this because this is the easiest way to protect our family. And we don't lose everything. She's like, but, but I'm not guilty. Like, and if I do that, it was going to be like a felony. I believe she's like, that'll ruin any of my future goals and aspirations. So they decided to fight it. And it was kind of like a very traumatic thing for her family because they're spending all this money fighting this lawsuit. And there's some animosity between parents and Aaron. She tells a story much better than I do. Well, it turns out that they ended up like getting some video footage or something. And she was not guilty. The other person was actually at fault. It was like a motorcycle or a bicyclist and they ran a red light. She wasn't even at fault, so she got off. But she talks about how the trauma of being in a situation where they didn't have choices and the default choice was, I have to plead guilty and ruin my life 
because of money, how that trauma put her in a place where she said, I'm never going to worry about money again. She was going to figure out a way to be ultra successful. But I think that's a good story of trauma. And you'll see it sometimes, Elias, with people who come from families where maybe mom and dad weren't the most responsible with money. There's two routes that are going to happen if you're from a family where your parents aren't responsible with money. One, you're not going to be responsible with money. Or two, you're going to see the extreme opposite because the child was so scared of where mom and dad were that they're like, I'm not doing that. And they just say, hey, look, that financial trauma from 25 years ago and us not knowing where we're going to get groceries or not saving or whatever those things are, I'm not going to put myself in that position. So I think those are two really good examples of financial trauma that shape how people start to make decisions. Yeah, those are, and those are, you know, those can be like those situations, situations you just talked about. Those can really kind of form people for, for the rest of their life. I was not aware of that story about Aaron Botts, but that's pretty insightful. You didn't sit in on that with me, but I'll be honest, it, you know, she talks about crafting your story. Well, that was her story, but it just shed a lot of light when we were talking about this today. I'm like, I didn't plan on talking about it, but as you're talking about, I'm like, that's exactly what this is. Right. It's completely reshaped that trauma financially is completely reshaped how she thought about finances and money in the future. And she just told herself, I'm never going to be in the situation again. Well, and she at six, she was 16 years old and you're sitting there thinking this might ruin my, like to feel like my life is going to be ruined at 16 over something that well, I didn't do anything wrong. When she tells the story, she actually talks about how her mom, like they don't have money. And she's like, it's your fault that we don't have any money. Like, put some of the blame on her because she refused oh, to plead guilty that's to this. Painful. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the family dynamic is, but it was a really captivating talk and it just really went well with, with what we were talking about here. Um, one thing that happens this time of year, though, Elias is trans America. They, they do an annual retirement survey and here's what they just released their 2030 annual. So they've been doing this for 23 years. And what's ironic about this is every year we think things are going to be different, but they're all kind of the same. But it gives us a little bit of insight as to what people are actually thinking about. And this year, their their survey focused mostly on multi-generational workforce um, in a post-pandemic world. Because if you think about the dynamic of workers today, it's changed a lot in the last three years. And, and interestingly enough, it's kind of reverting back to where it was three years ago. There's a lot of companies who told their employees, hey, you don't have to come in the office. You can work wherever you want. And what are they doing now? You're coming Everybody's back coming back. Yeah. I, I said this I said this two years ago. I said, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna this is gonna be a great idea. Everybody works from home. But ultimately companies are gonna two or three years down the road open up their books and say, Man, earnings are down. What happened? And the common answer is that people are working from home and we can argue about how productive people are working from home. My, my argument is most people, if they were that highly motivated and had that much direction that they could operate, function, work at home in a high capacity, they would have just owned their own business. They would have been their own boss. They're not. They're looking for direction. But this study compared how Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, and baby boomers view retirement and their current financial situation. Here's what's interesting about the findings that I thought as I'm kind of reading through all the data, the younger and older generation. So that'd be like boomers versus Gen Z often 
view themselves as we have nothing in common. I think if you asked most 23-year-olds if they have stuff in common with their 65-year-old parents or grandparents, they'd be like, no, not much. No, nope. but, but when it comes to money and retirement, their views actually over, overlap a lot. And I'm going to hit on the first one here, but it was a retirement dreams. Workers across the generations share three of the same retirement dreams. So it doesn't matter if you're 23, 40, 65. These are the three common things that people dream about having a retirement. And one is they want to travel. I think that's normal. People spend 20, 30 years working and hey, this is my opportunity to go see the world and do all the things I've never done. So that was 64% of the people in this study said their number one retirement dream is traveling. Okay. Um, two, spending more time with friends and family. That was 55% and three, pursuing hobbies. And it didn't matter the age. So that, that's kind of kind of interesting. There's a few differences though that as I read through, I noticed, and that's millennials and Gen Z are more likely than Gen X and baby boomers to dream of doing some sort of work in retirement. That's interesting. So, yeah. I, and maybe it's because they've accepted the fact they believe they're going to have to work in retirement. Maybe. Or, or, or they've also seen what's happened to their parents and grandparents. So I, I think we're fortunate to see many people retire and help them with that transition of life. And I can tell you the the clients that have the most fulfilling retirements have something in mind that they're going to do, right? Whether it's, Hey, I retired. I'll use my dad. He retired, but he went back to teach part-time. So he's just teaching two classes instead of five because he loves to do it. But it was, Hey, he got to pick the days of the week. Um, people that don't know what they're going to do, they struggle the first you know, a few months of retirement as they try to get their groove. And I just wonder if millennials and Gen Z are saying, Hey, I've seen my mom or dad retire and nothing great happened. We've had clients who've retired and became alcoholics because they didn't have anything to do. Not on purpose. It just happened. And maybe they saw their parents do that. Like, you know, while I may retire, maybe I want to go continue to do something. I'll use myself as an example. If I retired, which likely, I will someday, I don't know what, but if I retired early, maybe I'd go work at Shields and work in the fishing department, talk about fishing equipment all day long. Cause it wouldn't be for money. It'd be for, Hey, this is my purpose in retirement, or maybe it's volunteering or whatever the other things that that could happen are. That, that That's pretty insightful. I'm sure that has something to do with it. I think after kind of thinking through this, I'm guessing younger people probably, they view that like sense of purpose they probably feel I'm going to have something to do, have something that keeps me going. And and like you said, the the re retired families that have already transitioned, the, it is the ones who have things they're doing, whether it's volunteering, giving back, but they're staying active and they're doing things. They typically seem to be having the best, most enjoyable time. Well, so those are kind of the positive things. What's interesting is they share exactly the same what I would call retirement fears and the, the number one retirement fear people have. And I, I don't care who you are. Everybody's concerned about this at some level and it's outliving their money. At the end of the day, that's the number one fear people going in. Like, am I going to outlive this? Unless you've got to a point where you have so much money or you have big pensions, you're just not concerned about it. But most people 
39% in this survey feel they're uh, concerned with outliving their money, which I'll be honest, I'm a little shocked it's only 39%. Do 60% well, of the people really feel confident about their retirement? Considering if I look at all the other data out there, that number's completely backwards, but maybe that's why people... You know, maybe, I don't know. It might lend itself to just, there's certain people that are just not thinking about it at all. Like if you've never you're put 35, any, you're 35, you're not worried yeah. about it. That's not your fear. You're right. If you've never put any thought into it. If yeah, I think you're right. Even, if, if it was, if we only looked at baby boomers, I bet it's significantly higher yeah. than Gen Z or Gen X. Um, the thing was social security being reduced or ceasing to exist, which this is 36%. Once again, this number actually shocks me. Here's why. I think if you're under 32, I'm not sure you even know what Social Security is. Well, hopefully you know it's deducted from your paycheck. I don't. They don't send a statement to you anymore, so I don't think most people realize they have a benefit. What's the, what's the greatest way to take a benefit away from somebody? Just never let them know what it is. Don't put it in front of their face. Yeah. How many uh, how many 32-year-olds have went and logged on to SSA.gov to look up their Social Security benefit? A tenth of a percent. So maybe. It's, Elias, it's like a goal. If you don't write it down, it's not real. Right? If you make a goal, but you don't write it down, it's not real. Well, if you never check your statement, you never get one in the mail, guess what? I guess it's not real. You know do you start getting them every 10 years once you turn 50? I don't think or they do mail they get them, them at all. There's no more mailing. They used, you used to get one every year. I don't. They keep changing it. I don't know if they mail them at all. It might all be online. Maybe it's every five years. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like anybody ever gets one in the mail. The only way they go get, go get it is to get online at ssa.gov. Three, declining health uh, that requires long-term care. 35% of the people surveyed. Um, are concerned about that. And, and I think that's probably a growing concern as people actually age and get older, you know, modern medicine's allowing people to live longer, but maybe not necessarily in the capacity that they want to live. So needing some type of advanced care as you get older is becoming more and more common. And I think we're going to see it as modern medicine keeps evolving. We're able to keep people alive longer, but can we keep the mind healthy? Can we let people move in a good manner? All those different things come with that. And then uh, the fourth is not being able to meet the needs for their family. And then fifth, possible long-term care costs. So that's an overlap of number three. Um, but I think as I look through this, just people that are young and old have much more similarities when it comes to money and retirement than, than you actually might think. Uh, but with that said, Elias, do you have anything else you want to add to the show? It was a good show. We talked a little bit about, you know, some of the things in this Transamerica survey. And uh, I think we actually gave some good information about how to think about different things and why planning is important and planning not only retirement, but how much you're going to spend, what you're going to do to try to conquer some of these fears and goals and desires that people have. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, we, we covered a lot. And I just, I think if you can... Do some planning and kind of stick to it over time, right? Commit commit to what you want to do. You're going to have a much more effective – you'll be much more effective at accomplishing your goals. I'd say that's a takeaway from today.
With that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you're looking for help with a financial plan, you can contact us at btwellshow.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on all of your social media pages. Until next time, we'll see you next week, and thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional 